Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week, we're learning all about donations as a reader revenue strategy for publishers. And joining me on the podcast, I have Press Gazette's UK editor, Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte. Hello, Dom. So we have flown over to America for this week's interview. We're talking to the CEO of Mother Jones. Is that right? That is correct, Monica Bowline. Full disclosure, she's flown over to us, hasn't she? Is remote. <laughs> she's in San Francisco. No one needs to fly anywhere anymore, do they? It's amazing the age we live in. But Mother Jones, now they're an alternative magazine, aren't they? Which become a big, big website, like a bigger deal as a website. And I can remember them having some fairly famous writers writing for them in the 2000s and so on. But t- tell us a bit more about them. Yes, yeah, so you're right. They started as a print magazine in 1976. A print magazine is still going and has about 180,000 subscribers who obviously form part of its reader revenue model. But online or in total, it reaches around 8 million people each month nowadays. Obviously, that shows how much it's grown. Its tagline is smart, fearless journalism. It sort of invests in a lot of long investigations and features that other publishers are doing, but maybe can struggle to justify at times when it's based on how much advertising revenue you can get in. I won't spoil it, but Monica gives a good example of a prison investigation and the amount of advertising revenue it brought in versus the amount they had to invest in reporting it. And that shows they believe that the typical commercial model doesn't work as well for their type of journalism. And that's why they've stuck with this non-profit model that they've had since their launch. And they are extremely reliant on reader donations and other reader support. So these US titles are kind of amazingly good, aren't they, at making a sort of left-wing kind of upmarket magazine, something like The Atlantic, The New Yorker. They've done really well, haven't they? And uh, I guess America's just a bigger market, isn't it? Well, I reckon there's lots of things that UK publishers can learn from them. And their business model, I, I'd call it the kind of tip jar approach, which is, I, which I think is one of the first ones we saw in the early days of the internet, but it's based just this idea that we're not going to charge you but we're going to appeal to your better nature and say, it's a bit like Wikipedia, isn't it? it? Just We need donations to keep us going. Is that right? Yeah, it's it does remind me in some ways of The Guardian as well, in the sense that they deliberately don't want a paywall on their journalism. They want it to be accessible to as many people as possible. So they've almost brought this ethos of, if you can help support us financially, we'll keep it open and you're helping the greater good. So yeah, at the bottom of stories, you'll see an appeal for donations. They do regular campaigns explaining why they need donations. And they're very transparent with the numbers as well, which I was quite impressed by. But Monica said that's completely necessary, basically, because you need that trust with the readers. You need them to understand what their money's going to. 
Yeah, a bit like national public radio as well in the US. We always want to hear, press here, don't we, about new ways to make quality journalism pay. This sounds like a good, like an old way that's working well in, in new ways. How's it going for them? Yeah, Monica seemed quite a bee. She acknowledged that at the moment, as with everyone else, there's all sorts of economic headwinds. And she said, I can't say for sure how we'll come through it. They obviously don't know yet whether rising inflation and cost of living will affect how much readers are willing to give but they're doing very well in the sense that they've got a 50 strong newsroom of journalists so it's a very impressive newsroom size and as I say they've still got the print magazine they've got a strong website seems to be in a good place it's just about it's a continual process I think that's the only thing with this model you have to continually show readers and ask readers for that support if you let them forget about it then obviously you'll be in a bit of trouble so for the interview I started by asking Monica to explain a bit about what Mother Jane's is just for anyone that hasn't heard of it before Mother Jones was founded in 1976 as a sort of Kickstarter of the day almost. It was in the wake of Watergate and this feeling was in the air that investigative journalism could really change the world, but also that investigative journalism was not being directed at all the targets that it could go after. For example, the founders felt really strongly that corporations were being not sufficiently focused on an investigative reporting. And so they essentially asked an audience if a magazine like this existed that was dedicated entirely to investigative and in-depth journalism, would you like to read it? And the response was yes. And so Mother Jones has been here for 47 years since. We still do publish a print magazine. It still has a circulation of about 200,000 in the U.S. primarily. But we, of course, like everyone else, have a much larger digital footprint and reach about 8 million people a month across platforms. We have a newsroom of about 50 journalists and a kind of unique business model that relies for the biggest share of its revenue on individual supporters. Some of them are print magazine subscribers. Many more of them are donors at every level. And particularly in the last few years, we have found that people are really responsive to the idea that the traditional business models for the press, primarily advertising, are dead or dying. And that for democracies to have a free and vibrant independent press, it needs to become a public good that citizens support. And we are really happy to be able to advance this model and share it with everyone. Brilliant. It's just reassuring to know that you're still going strong and people are still supporting you. You mentioned already, obviously, about the biggest proportion being from individuals supporting your journalism. Are you able to share a percentage or any other figures to show how many people are just choosing to hit donate and give you money? Yes, absolutely. So in total, about 75% of our revenue comes from individuals. That includes about 15% of the total that comes from subscriptions to the print magazine. But the real value of that subscriber base is that many of them also choose to become donors. And People on our other platforms that we reach via our website, email, social channels 
are also becoming donors at a lower rate. That's fairly typical online, that not as many people who encounter your journalism online become supporters as do in more traditional legacy channels. But we are working really hard at increasing those numbers. In total, there are about 50,000 people in any given year who donate and about 180,000 people subscribe to the print magazine about 200 and well depending on how you count it between 200 and 300,000 individuals subscribe to our newsletter which is free but of those also a percentage choose to donate perfect okay and then so I um saw you write in December about sort of your end of year campaign and you discussed some of the numbers there and about the fall or autumn for our UK listeners campaign falling about $100,000 short and setting the target of raising $1.4 million by the end of June. I wondered why you share all the numbers like this. Do you think it helps to be transparent with the readers? I think it's almost a requirement that we don't have an owner, we don't have a corporate or otherwise overlord, so to speak. So our readers are really de facto our owners. And if we ask them to continue supporting the work, we owe it to them to be really transparent. And that includes opening our books to Mm. them. And you also talked about how a lot of the donations tend to come at the end of the year. When you're how is that for you as the leader? Does that keep you up at night? Does it make it harder to plan ahead? How do you manage around that? And why is that? Constantly. Yeah, it's the reason many of the donations come at the end of the year is unique, I think, to U.S. philanthropic culture, in part because these donations are tax deductible if they are made for that year, if they're made before December 31st. So a lot of people, but also I think the holiday season has a lot of people thinking about how they can advance causes that they care about. And so that's a fairly typical phenomenon among nonprofits in the U.S. Um, But it's, yes, it's a constant struggle. It keeps me up at night every single night. We are not a very conservative organization as the shits an investigative journalism organization. We are always leaving it all on the field in terms of going after stories and employing journalists. And there's really never any cushion. And we are transparent with our audience about that too. You really are making the case for the work every single day with every single story. And I think in this environment for journalism, that's incredibly stressful, but less stressful than being reliant on these, for example, corporate entities that can just pull the plug at any minute when the quarterly numbers don't get out. Yeah, as we've seen a bit already this year, which I want to mention later, but um, to continue on this theme, so you've obviously chosen to ask readers for donations rather than maybe more directly ask them to fund the journalism through a paywall, which I gather is quite a critical and key decision. I just wondered if you could break that down and why that is. Yes, that is a really key decision that sets Mother Jones apart from many other news organizations. And I think the fundamental assumption that we're making is that this journalism is not something that you purchase for yourself, 
but something that you want to exist for the world. If it is something that you purchase for yourself, then a paywall makes sense. You're accessing it so that this is why paywalls work particularly well, for example, in the financial press where people are able to turn information into money, so to speak. Or you might purchase it so you become a better home chef or so that you have better ideas for your vacations. But journalism, investigative journalism is really not for you. It's for the world. And so people who choose to support it in many cases do so because they want it to be out there and want it to make a better and more informed democracy. Yeah, I know that, for example, The Guardian has said quite similar things on that. How many media organisations do you see doing a similar thing to you? Do you wish there were more or think that maybe there should be more? Yes, I think it's actually a sort of a major crisis at the moment that so much more journalism is going behind paywalls. I understand why that is and that newsrooms have to stay in business, but it means that the that digital spaces in particular are now full of good information that is accessible only to people who can pay and disinformation and garbage that is free and abundant. And I think that's a really dangerous environment. What's the solution to that? Would asking for reader donations work for many more news organizations or is it something that would only work for a few at a time? I think that's the huge question that we confront, certainly in the U.S. quite urgently as many more traditional news organizations collapse. I would say for commercially oriented news organizations, asking for donations typically is not going to work. People are very sophisticated about what they're being asked to do. And if they're being asked to support an entity that is also a for-profit business, then you're really subsidizing the profits of those shareholders. There are now more commercial news organizations that are transitioning to nonprofit status, including major urban newspapers, or that are merging with nonprofit organizations. And there are many more nonprofit news organizations that are springing up to replace or build something better in place of these legacy newsrooms. I don't think we know yet how many, how much of a vibrant journalism ecosystem individual donations can support. There's a problem on a scale that is not unimaginable. People have run the math and have said essentially the need for philanthropic support of journalism in the U.S. is about on the scale of the need of support for ballet. And ballet, you could argue, is a has a more narrow constituency. But I do think that we also need to figure out whether there might be additional sources of revenue, including something that is not very significant yet in the U.S., but perhaps could in the future be, which is public support of some kind. Mm, okay. And then, so you talked about how readers might respond to what they're being asked. I wondered what you've found works in terms of asking them and appealing to them. So you have boxes at the bottom of some stories. You obviously write some sort of pieces specifically targeted at explaining to people why you need to appeal to them. But 
yeah, is there anything else that you do and what work, what do people respond to? What we have found works particularly well, and I'm not sure this is universal, is being really authentic about our fundraising so that the fundraising doesn't come to you in a voice that is different from the journalism. It doesn't, we don't contract it out to marketing firms. We apply some of the best practices of fundraising, of course, and we have terrific professionals working on that. But the reason, for example, I'm involved in writing a lot of the appeals is that it really speaks to you in the voice of the journalism because that's what you are there to interact with. If you're on Mother Jones's website or on one of our social channels, that's what you expect. And we try to have a lot of respect for our audience and be really not only transparent with them, but also have a really high quality conversation with them about just the kinds of things that you and I are talking about, what journalism means in a democracy, what the traditional funding and revenue models are and why they're not working anymore. And we try to give them a lot of information to make their own decisions on. And I think in one of those pieces, you said something along the lines of a more begging approach doesn't work. Why is that? And is it, can it be hard to toe the line just right between appealing and begging? <laughs> I have to say, I'm not entirely sure that the begging approach doesn't work. It certainly is incredibly common right now across digital fundraising. So I'm sure your inbox, just like mine, is filled with emails with all capital letters and emotional appeals and urgencies. There are definitely a lot of people out there who believe that this works. I think the decision that we had to make was, is it ethical and is it appropriate for us as an organization that promises solid, truthful information where, you know, that that is our product, that is what people come to us for if we are not solid, truthful, honest, and information filled in our fundraising. And the decision that we made was that we should be true to ourselves and true to what our audiences are looking for. And to our great relief, that is in fact something that people are responding to. And I think a useful counterpoint to a lot of the more manipulative fundraising and marketing content that you see out there. That makes sense. Sort of almost about being consistent in your own brand. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I wanted to ask as well, with, for example, the boxes at the bottom of the story is that something that means you can see how much a particular story drives in and therefore maybe how much impact it's had and if so how much does that come into play when you're making decisions in the newsroom we are not analyzing that data on a story by story basis typically i know that our news organizations that have done this 
My hypothesis is that it's not quite as direct and transactional a relationship that usually a reader who decides to become involved in supporting the journalism, very rarely that happens because of one particular story. We have had some of our biggest investigative projects that have had a lot of resonance that clearly have motivated people to give right there on the spot. But I think most of the time, it's a little more of an accretive experience where people see the journalism more than once. And in fact, I think the New York Times had some data about their subscriber conversions that this is from some years ago, but that indicated that people who read more than five articles across more than one vertical were the most likely to become subscribers. And so it's that repeated interaction, I think, that is more motivating to readers than an individual article, which is why we want to just focus on providing a consistently great experience across the journalism. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. So then uh, you said uh, three quarters comes from sort of reader support in terms of your revenue. Can you just talk us through what where the other third comes from? The remaining revenue is from historically advertising was about 15%, 13 to 15% of our revenue. Now it's actually down to six. So if we were a primarily advertising supported newsroom, I think the trajectory is pretty clear that we would not be here at this point. We also have some support from institutional giving, major foundations primarily in the U.S. And then there are single-digit percentage points of additional revenue sources that we're always trying something new. We have a little merchandise store. We have at different times had revenue from podcast distribution. So we're constantly chasing after new opportunities. That's good. And then, so I wanted to ask a big question is, what does your sort of non-profit ethos and setup help you do that you might not be able to do in a maybe more traditional or commercial setup? Everything. <laughs> it's We would not be, do, be able to do the kind of public service journalism that we do that is really our is really the entire focus of our newsroom if we had to rely on commercial revenues. We have a $17 million budget, and you can do the math with the 6% of that budget that is provided by advertising and maybe count an additional 15 or 14 or so percent from subscription revenue. We would have, we would just barely be able to keep the lights on, but not provide any public service journalism. We had a story some years ago where I actually did the math and tried to lay it out for our readership, where our reporter went and got a job as a prison guard inside a private prison, since that's an industry that is very opaque to many people in the U.S. He worked there for three months. We did an additional year or so of further reporting, fact-checking, investigating. We videos, we partnered with an investigative podcast called Reveal. And all in all, the project cost the $300,000, $350,000 to do over that time. And that's from a very frugal news organizations. There are no limos and no on-site chefs involved at Mother Jones. 
the advertising revenue that came in from the, I think, ultimately a million and a half to two million people who read that story on our website and on social platforms was in the $10,000 range total. So that kind of journalism is just not going to exist with any other model than with reader support, particularly over the long haul. I think some people are under the impression that foundations, particularly institutional donors, will support this kind of work. And that can be true for a portion of it, but is almost never true over a long period. And the fact that Mother Jones has been here doing this kind of reporting for 47 years is entirely because individuals at every level have chosen to support it. Yeah, that's incredible. But then, so looking at the period we're in at the moment, as mentioned earlier, there have been a fair number of journalism job cuts recently, both in the US and UK and elsewhere, and lots of people citing various economic headwinds. How are you positioned at the moment? Obviously, for some, advertising is a big problem, which maybe is less of a problem for you. But then do you worry that readers are less likely to donate during the time when cost of living is rising and inflation is rising? I don't think we know yet uh, how it's going to shake out. It definitely affects Mother Jones like everyone else. I think any time that the economy is uncertain, people's decision making is more uncertain, both in terms of their of their news consumption, so to speak, and their decision to support journalism. It's also, I think, true that we have a certain amount of news fatigue across the board. People are just really tired of being bombarded with doom and gloom headlines. And we have the kind of implosion of advertising that affects all of us that have that at least as a portion of our revenue. What gives me hope is that there have been many of these kinds of crises before and Mother Jones readers have really stepped up to support us through all of them. So I know I can say with a lot of confidence that Mother Jones will be here, but whether we will have to struggle through this next year or two or three, or really be able to forge a deeper and more powerful connection with audiences, I think is still remains to be seen. I think there's a tremendous opportunity at a moment when people are very much hungry for information that they can trust and journalism that they can trust, we find that's the primary driver for people to come to Mother Jones is that they can really see that we do the work and they can trust us. And so there's a lot of opportunity to forge those connections, but we're definitely going to have to be on our toes. It's interesting that you mentioned the news fatigue as well. There's been in a lot of discussion of that and slightly different phrase news avoidance at conferences in the UK at least recently. Is there anything you're consciously doing to target those people who are getting a bit fed up with the news or do you have any tips in that area? We were quite intentional in talking about that in part because it also affects us. Journalists feel the burnout like everyone else And we talked about that with our audience. We asked them about how they are feeling and how they are coping with news fatigue. And one of the things that they told us was that it's really important for them to build a connection with an outlet that 
focuses on the most important stories and that doesn't deluge them with headlines there that have their urgency cranked up to 11 all the time. So I think in some ways people are making a bit of a shift from quantity and doom scrolling and just ingesting huge quantities of news to more quality um, and are actually spending a little more time with the smaller numbers of stories that they really care about. Mm, uh, I wonder if this next question ties in, but going back to the headwinds at the moment, obviously one of those is in print with rising newsprint costs and distribution costs and various other things. Why are you still in print, basically? <laughs> and Are you committed to staying in print? Only as long as it works for people. We are not attached to the dead trees or the recycled paper itself. But what we find is that print is a really powerful channel for people who would like the journalism to come to them in a form that's not on a screen and that they form a really deep relationship with powerful storytelling that comes to them physically and that they can spend some time with. And so as long as it works for people and has the response that we see for our print magazine that people choose to support it at quite a significant rate will be there for them with that product and if if it no longer works then you know our storytelling certainly is not dependent on that format just as with audio storytelling people have said that print was dead many times and it continues to not be dead because it really brings a connection that people want yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. I just want to see if there's anything else you can share, maybe things that are top of mind for you right now. What's on your sort of to-do list to sort out at the moment? I think the most interesting and exciting work for journalists for the next 5, 10, 20 years is to really develop two-way relationships with audiences where we listen just as much as we tell stories. We are inherently storytellers and so it's natural to us to push our storytelling outward but we are also if we're good at what we do we're very good listeners we ask people questions all the time and so asking questions of our audiences listening to what they have to say and becoming partners with them in creating a good information ecosystem and ultimately a more vigorous democracy i think is the path to being relevant and to survival of journalism that deserves to survive because people embrace it. I would love for anybody listening to this to come check Mother Jones out on our website or on any of our social channels and give us some feedback about what you're seeing and what you think is working and where we could do better. Thanks for that, Charlotte. Great to hear from Monica, CEO, Mother Jones. I feel like reader revenue is very top of mind at the moment. We've just had the reach results in the UK and then we're having a bunch of redundancies basically because online ad revenue is going down the swanee a bit at the moment. So, yeah, lots of publishers looking to read a revenue at the moment. But what do you think we can learn from Mother Jones in terms of having a successful reader revenue strategy? 
So Monica acknowledges that it's it can be a constant struggle to continue building reader revenue and says you have to make the case every single day with every single story, which I thought was quite a strong message. She suggested it would be great if other people learned from what they and others are doing and maybe had a more non-profit ethos. She did say we don't know yet how much of a vibrant journalism ecosystem individual donations can support, but suggested others can do more with it. For example, it's worth pointing to in the US, the Philadelphia Inquirer changed to a non-profit status in 2016. So might be one to watch if others choose to do the same thing, especially as you say, if advertising revenue continues to be in a hard place. News avoidance has obviously been a topic that we've talked about on this podcast before and on Press Gazette, and she terms it news fatigue. But she's saying one way to help that is to make sure people are building a connection with a news outlet. And also, if you focus on fewer important stories rather than bombarding them with everything, basically a quality over quantity approach that's helping them and then that obviously is tying into people being willing to pay like everyone they've got to get through this tough time ahead but i think there's some positive things to take forward from there i always say that charlotte don't i, I always say less is more you Apart do. From sometimes when i when i just ask for more it's very confusing sometimes, sometimes more is more too but yeah i like that idea that this could be a model for local newspapers as well but i guess monica said you have content that people really value, don't you? And that they really feel is making a difference. I guess that's why it works for them and why it works for The Guardian. Brilliant. Thanks for that. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained. Me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford, UK Editor Charlotte Tobit, and expertly produced by Adrian Bradley. You can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to subscribe and also check out pressgazette.co.uk for more on this and all the other topics we cover about the future of publishing. Thanks for listening. Listener.